Hey everyone, welcome to Show Me the Meaning, Wisecracks Movie Podcast. Show me the meaning! My name is Jared, and we've got a full house today. We've got some exciting guests. First of all, we have the regular dudes. We got Ryan and Austin. Sup, film fans? Hey. And we have special guests from the Extra Credits YouTube channel. We have James Portnow and Matthew Kroll. How's it going, guys? Hey, everybody. This is James Portnow. And this is Matt. What's up, everybody? So we're really happy to have them. If you don't know about Extra Credits, Extra Credits is an awesome YouTube channel that does everything from history to video game appreciation. Why don't I let you guys talk about it? Uh, because you're probably much better at pitching it than I am. No, I mean, I think you got it. Uh, I have been a game designer for many years, started a, a YouTube channel with a buddy of mine talking about how we can get more from our games and understand game design, expand to teaching some history, and now a million people watch it. So that's us. <laughs> Rock and roll. And I know, Matthew, you are a TV producer. You work for MTV and Viacom. You're a voiceover actor. He's also the co-host of Talking Movies with Matt and James and another movie podcast called The Only Podcast About Movies. <laughs> there is an asterisk in there, just so everyone is clear. We, we, we've we done research for about three minutes, and we, we didn't find anybody there. We've heard there's more. Uh, <laughs> I like the fact that we actually prefaced it with another podcast about movies exactly. called The Only Podcast About Movies. That was pretty good. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> awesome. So, guys, today we are talking about the 2018 movie Annihilation, written and directed by Alex Garland, starting Natalie Portman and Oscar Isaac. So, as always, we're going to go around and we're going to get first impressions. Uh, usually we talk about how it, what it's like revisiting a film, but since this film is brand new, I imagine we've probably all only seen it once. So, let's start with the new kids on the block. Let's start with James. James, what do you think about this movie? High level. Um, high level version. I thought that it did some great world building, but I was somewhat disappointed because having read the book before going into the movie, you know, I felt like the book asked a lot more questions and there were things that the movie just touched on, which uh, I love the exploration of in the book. Interesting. What about you, Matthew? Uh, I overall dug it. I dug it more from a, of a from a general story perspective, although I hadn't read the book. I didn't even know it was a book till a dinner party I was at discussing the film. Uh, and then I realized that there was a trilogy of books that this thing was based off. I'm like, that makes a lot more sense. Uh, I dug it overall. However, it definitely suffers from uh, a trope, which I'll get into a little more, called smart people doing stupid stuff. Uh, and uh, th there's one or two issues I have along the way, but it, it, I, I really enjoyed the fact that it, it, it cleared up the how things were going on overall and made us sort of more question the why. And I, I dug that. All right. Interesting. And Ryan? Um, well, I, uh, I liked it more than they did, I think, because uh, I thought just cinematically, man, like the last – really, okay, I, I, let me press that. I, I'd say that the last – 45 minutes or hours what made me really 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 love the movie um but then b the build up up to that point was just was pretty good it was interesting it was, you know there were some cool scenes and the 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 world building was cool but uh that last act spoiler alert the the silent one is really awesome i thought and and jared I, I, you're about to give your review but jared watched it on a laptop which i don't feel like <laughs> you're gonna have to take his review with a grain of salt oh come on <laughs> i mean uh, it, no i mean i'm willing to admit that Certainly, there. I mean, obviously, the optimized viewing experience for almost any movie is in a theater. But this is a, specifically a cinematic. Like, you got to be in the fucking theater listening to is that it fucking. It's because of the soundtrack. Synth sound yeah. just shaking the whole fucking thing. Okay, I mean, it, I, it was I, awesome. I, I buy that. I buy yeah. that absolutely. Someone should let Paramount know that because of their deal they made with <laughs> Netflix for their international release. Right, um, right. Well, yeah. they gave up on this movie, from what I <laughs> understand. I'm also James. I'm glad that you've read the book because I'm excited to talk. Because you know, I I haven't read the book, but uh, it was just a movie to me. But I'm I'm excited to hear more about the book. All right, let's go with Austin. Uh, yeah, I thought it was pretty ambitious visually. It was interesting. See, I I am in a similar boat with Jared. I had to watch it on my laptop because obviously I am in a Spanish territory at the moment. And so I had to wait for the international release. So I feel like I probably missed out on quite a bit of the cinematic experience, not being in a theater with a nice sound system and a big massive projection screen. So yeah, I, I nevertheless still thought it was pretty ambitious. Um, I liked it. I didn't love it. I thought conceptually it was relatively interesting, but to be honest, and I know this isn't really a fair criticism, but I said it in a tweet. I think it made me really want to watch two films that I think were um, quite uh, highly influential on this film, Melancholia and Stalker. And uh, I feel like uh, the the emotional, conceptual, existential themes that those two films 
explore, do it in a way that is much deeper, much more interesting, much more complex, much more mysterious, and much more ambiguous, which I think so many people are like kind of praising this film as being like so smart and ambiguous with that weird elusive ending. And I'm kind of like, I don't know, man, it seems actually pretty self-explanatory to me. Yeah. So uh, I actually want to preface my opinion by saying that I saw Austin's tweet before watching the movie and I looked at it and I said, (laughs) Oh no, I influenced you. (laughs) No, 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 no. Well, uh, I mean, okay. So I love Stalker. I actually have a poster of Stalker in my, in my apartment and I was like, I said, a stalker melancholia, like Austin, you pretentious douchebag. There's no way that this is actually in the, but, but you were absolutely right. I don't think I could think of two movies that, you know, I, I guess that this movie aspires to be than those two movies. I think you were absolutely right. Well, I can see stalker, but melancholia, how? The, uh, the looming threat of annihilation or the looming threat of um, elimination, depending on how you well, want to look like at it. Well, it seemed like, and then all the characters are these like broken, depressed people. One of them has cancer. One of them is suicidal. One of them has a kid that died, and they're all kind of going on this suicide mission for this like resignation of their inevitable doom. And well, they're almost they, like, they like all, none of them really said it. it was a suicide mission. They all just kind of implied probably a suicide mission. I didn't feel the no, they did. There was doom. a part where the main character is on the boat with the other girl or with Natalie Portman. And she says something like, you know, why would anybody want to go on a mission like this? I mean, and, they then, don't, she, and, then, they, and then she responds. So you think this is a suicide mission? And, but they qualify it as, Oh, not quite. You know, the whole thing is like, right. Oh, there's a difference between, there's like that important line where there's a difference between suicide and self-destruction. And so, I mean, anyway, so... Well, and that's one of the central themes that the film explores that is quite interesting, right? Um, So I'm sure we'll get into that more, but that that, that relation between the two is is central. Anyway, my top level thing is that it's a cool concept, some cool visuals, but I find the film to be pretty frustrating. Yeah. And I think it's too frustrating (laughs) to call profound. Mm. And I, the more I think about it, the more I think that it's all almost nonsense. (laughs) Um, I feel like on on, on the one hand... The film over-explains some of its visual imagery and motifs, but then it obscures any potentially meaningful stuff behind a thick wall of I don't knows. There's right. a fair amount of I don't knows. You don't know why the alien's doing any of this shit, really. Yeah, I mean, I have a theory, but even my theories, I have a theory which we can get into later, but even my theories I don't think are substantiated in the text. Yeah. See, I like I like that, and we can get into it more, but I like that I don't know. And I think that there's some interesting well, that, ontological then, stuff well, I guess, that's going on. But you said that it was pretty clear. Yeah, well, that's the thing, is I do think it's clear. Um, I, I don't think it's like, clear in that it's it's clear in that no one knows or the, the, the I don't know is <laughs> well, clear. Well, let's get into it after you do your synopsis. But yeah, okay. it's clear. It's clear okay. that that the I don't know is signaling at something. Uh, intentional. But yeah, okay, go ahead. And if I could just, one last thing for the recap. If I see another relationship scene with people tickling each other in bed, <laughs> I'm going to go crazy. Like, I just, I, I've seen that too many times. And I think- Name that, others. I can't name others. <laughs> <them. laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> there aren't any others. Yeah, no. Uh, Jesus. I mean, yeah, I, I just felt the relationship scenes are pretty trite. And I didn't really- get the romance angle. I mean, it's certainly not a romance film, but I find myself asking, especially with the conclusion with them embracing themselves in the last shot, like, what are we supposed to be getting out of this conclusion? Let me first go into the recap. So, it's been a year since biology professor Lena's husband, Kane, left for a top-secret military operation. She's just about to give up hope until one day he shows up disoriented and horribly ill. A military convoy abducts Lena and Kane and takes them to Area X, a covert military base set up to study the Shimmer, a mysterious effervescent dome originating at a lighthouse that threatens to swallow the whole planet. Kane is the only operative to ever return from its depths. Lena joins a crew of four other operatives and enters the Shimmer, where the preconceived notions of time, physics, and biology don't apply. Lena discovers that the genes of various wildlife and plants are being combined and mutated, and that the same kind of genetic merging not only happened to previous operatives, but to her own crew. As they venture farther toward the lighthouse, mutated beasts murder some of the crew, and their sanity starts to slip. Eventually, one of the operatives realizes that the Shimmer acts as a prism that not only refracts light, but all DNA, including their own. Eventually, Lena reaches the lighthouse where she discovers a video showing Kane killing himself next to what looks like a doppelganger. Venturing further into the depths of the lighthouse, Lena witnesses her commanding officer die, and an extraterrestrial being uses blood from Lena's face to manifest a humanoid body that mimics her movements. The body soon takes the shape of Lena. 
Lena uses a phosphorus grenade to burn the doppelganger and the lighthouse with it. The shimmer disappears, and Lena is debriefed by the military. Back at Area X, Lena confronts Kane. She asks him if he really is Kane, to which Kane says, I don't know. Kane then asks if she is in fact the real Lena. They embrace, and the refracted nature of the shimmer gleans in both of their eyes. End of movie. All right, so there's a lot of stuff to break down here. Um, should we just start with the ending? Just get right into it, right into <laughs> sure. what we think is going spoilers. on. Spoilers. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, spoilers. I just explained the whole movie. <laughs> oh, yeah, good um, point. Forgot about that. <laughs> so uh, let's start with the new guys. Uh, Matthew, uh, James, what do you guys, do you guys have any specific interpretations of what happens at the end scene and what we're supposed to take away from this movie? Uh, I, I do a bit. And again, mine comes from the the place of, again, not having read the books, which I think, well, the books, from what I understand, I bet you James will sort of touch on that, is that they, they, there's angles of this entire story that they just kind of drop 80% of. Um, but I took the ending more as, uh, you know, when you see, especially like the very last shot where you see the, the same, you know, soap bubbly shimmer in their eyes when they're hugging. Uh, that to me was like, basically now they are this thing. Like they are the new thing that was created that will then possibly or whenever, uh, continue on and cause further annihilation. It's no longer this lighthouse. They're now the epicenter. Uh, however, I don't know if it did enough to make me care. Uh, mm -hmm. that's really where I hit on it. The, the ending, especially the whole scene in the lighthouse, the whole buildup, you know, you find out Kane's uh, not Kane, most likely, and she might not be her. Uh, that, to me, while I loved the visuals of it with some questionable physics on, on the CG model, uh, <laughs> <laughs> listen, when they can't get something to fall down right, that's when I have a problem. Uh, when, it doesn't, when, when a CG character doesn't have weight, I'm always like, and I'm done. Um... <laughs> But this is this is the video game designer thing coming out. Uh, well, I know that, that I know that that's James, but uh, yeah, you guys seem to know your stuff. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I I I've thought honestly, which is interesting. I think it was uh, Ryan. You said you loved the last half, the last forty minutes yeah. or so. That was the part that I I. Um, I I had felt like the the film had given me enough of a of a beautiful world and an interesting sort of overarching story again not really character driven story um, up till that point and then that point the ending was like cool for me and then I just sort of was like it, it earned enough goodwill to get me through the problems I had with the sort of like middling no real answer ending and uh, and so I was cool with it. But then people, my friends have been like, oh, is there going to be a sequel now? And I'm like, there, there's not going to be a sequel. Uh, <laughs> no but, one saw this movie. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I pretty much agree with you, by the way. Like, like why I, I say I love the the end of the movie uh, and I do, it's, it, I, it's not perfect up till then. They didn't really, it wasn't like a payoff for what you've had seen set up. It's more just like, wow, this is a really cool scene. I haven't seen it in a movie before. Mm -hmm. That's about what I was thinking. James, what do you think? Uh, for me, what did I get out of the ending? Uh, I got disappointment. Um, <laughs> so the whole, to me, the ending implies, as Matt said, that the that the creature has now become them, that, oh, this has been an unreliable narrator the entire time. You don't know what of their story is true. Uh, but fundamentally, um, the alien has escaped, right? We've fundamentally got a... Um, a situation like um, body snatchers. Uh, and to me, that was highly disappointing because there were all these issues that they touched on within the film, especially, as you said, this sort of biological urge to self-destruction that I thought were very powerful. Um, this idea of humanity as a group of individuals acting as one compared to one organism acting as many. There were a lot of these things that they dealt with, and instead they wrap it up with a, oh, isn't it a crazy twist, right? But I didn't feel like there was a lot of heft to that twist. I didn't feel like there was a lot of meaning I could draw from it. And so to me, that was that was a little bit disappointing. Right. I agree. Austin, let's get into your theories. <laughs> so I think that there are two ways to read it. One, which would be a more Hegelian reading, and one would be a more Deleuzian reading. And I'll explain what I mean by that. So Hegel obviously talks about the dialectic, right? And we talk about that a lot on Wisecrack. The um, undergraduate version of the dialectic is that you have a thesis, right? Like black, and you have an antithesis, 
white, and then you have a synthesis. The two of them come together and they form gray. Gray then becomes the new thesis. So the thesis is gray, then there's a new antithesis, whatever the fuck it would be, and they come together and they form a synthesis and this process continues on forever, right? So at the end, the Hegelian reading of the film would be like, all right, so you got humans and you got alien, and then there's a synthesis, and then at the end, what they are in their state of are you Kane and are you Lena or whatever her name was. And then the I don't know is, well, then they're this new synthesis. They're not, it's not that the alien has necessarily taken over and it's not that the human no longer exists. It's that the both, uh, the identity of the alien, the identity of the human, and then the non-identity of the alien and the human are synthesized into one, right? Which is going to then just kind of proliferate forever. That's the Hegelian reading. The Deleuzian reading is the one that I actually think is better. And it's the idea that, um, uh, Deleuze and Guattari use this word called a rhizome. And a rhizome is basically like this lateral multiplicity of interpenetrating forces. And I think that's what you get with this alien force. Rather than it being like these two opposing forces that kind of come together and converge into this synthesis. And I know that's like a really like juvenile reading of the dialectic too. So philosophy buffs out there. Um, I wish we can get into more complex stuff on Twitter. Hit me up. But um, uh, I think the Deleuzean reading is this idea that it's not this it's not negation, but rather it's just the uh, ubiquity of abundance or the ubiquity of life, which is why they talk about cancer, why they talk about pathology when they're first looking at the flowers inside or on the vine inside the shimmer. They talk about it being pathological. And then of course, um, her research, Natalie Portman's research is in like cells splitting and multiplying the abundance of life. So it's too much of life rather than the negation of something. And so what this rhizome or the rhizome model uh, indicates is that it's this radical pro proliferation, this pathological proliferation of abundance. And what that does is it scrambles the old identities. So the reason that the flowers are different on the vine is because they're uh, creating new identities, new hierarchies, new forms. Any flower can bloom on any uh, on any vine in so far as there's some sort of cross-contamination or a cross-pollination, right? And then the same thing happens with the human and alien and the human and plant and the human and earth, which is why you get all of these, these weird tapestries of like um, human, vine, uh, organic dirt things and structures that come together or the beasts that echo or speak with the voice of um, something that it has connected with or made a connection with. And so that's what you get then at the end is you get just this proliferation, this um, this absolute unbounded without any sort of needing the shimmer now uh, potential for this vital pathology to flow in the human world. And so Cain isn't the same Cain. Cain didn't come out. Some some other multiplicity came out that just kind of bore some echoes of what Cain looked like, but um, neither did Lena come out the same because there was, even though Cain came out and it was clear that his quote unquote original body had been destroyed and that it was the copy that came out. And so he doesn't know if he's Cain. He kind of has this weird different identity. Um, Lena's was different. Her name was Lena, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Hers was different because the copy was killed, but she came out and what's being explored there is that both the copy and the original have now become some sort of simulacra. So just to hold on for a second there though, uh, I'm not sure that the movie actually says that the copy was killed. I, f I think you can also interpret it as the copy made it out is sitting there giving, relating the whole thing because the entire thing is basically a flashback, a, rela a relation by the final Lena to interrogators who are human, right? Um, and so I'm not sure that the end of the film is actually what happened, right? I think that we're getting a um, a uh, false unreliable narration. narration. Yeah. Oh, so you think that there's like a plan that the only the only reason I would say I don't know about that is two things, and then this again. This then requires that we trust what Lena said, but um, but other people said it too. They said like, so what does it want, right? And they kept saying, I don't know. And I think the point was is that it actually didn't want anything. The reason it didn't want anything was because it was pure drive, pure vital flow. It just kind of functioned in its multiplicity and in its proliferation of itself. So it didn't have a, an end goal where it was like, I'm going to to manipulate them so that I can like infiltrate them. I don't think it even has that type of, mentality, which is, but then again, that re requires that we trust when people said, what does it want? And they kept saying, I don't know. I think that that, I think I personally like that reading. But yeah. but I also think just the idea that all the being did was copy her movements does suggest that it didn't know what it wanted. It was really just almost like playing around. Right. It's you know, unreflective. It didn't really seem to life. have an agenda. Yeah, exactly. It's just pure drive, you know? And so that's why I think the idea of the death drive is so kind of 
obviously yeah, apparent Yeah, damn, everywhere. I was going to bring I was going to bring that up, man. <laughs> okay, take 2. Jared, hey, you were going to bring no, something no, no, cool no, no, up, no, right? No, 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 no. It's it's okay. You you're probably much better. I was actually not going to get to that yet, but so this movie is one of those movies where and this is another trope that I'm not a big fan of is when you have like the heavy-handed thematically expository discussion. So like, you know, it opens with her teaching a class about cells and we now know that okay, cells or like this idea of division is going to become relevant in the rest right. of the movie. You know, it's like a big thematic bookend. Which I mean, I don't really hate that that much if it's done well. Like I think one like of the movies, Indiana Jones. Uh, haven't seen it in a while. I think like Half Nelson is a great idea. Half Nelson is actually a movie that is literally about the dialectic. I don't know if anyone has seen that. I love that movie. Um, but I don't really think that this discussion of cells really contextualizes the film's themes. So we're meant to believe, so she says, the rhythm of the dividing pair, which becomes the structure for every micro blade of grass, sea creature, land creature, and human. So later, you know, uh, what Jennifer Jason Lee's character says, you're a biologist. Isn't self-destruction coded into us, programmed in each cell? So... That thematically we can understand that, all right, so the nature of all reality or all biological organisms is to continue to divide, to self-destruct, and that's what we see happening in all the characters. So uh, we have uh, Lena's cheating on her husband, compromising her marriage. Uh, Kane goes on this, basically the suicide mission because he knows about the affair. Yeah, so Lena goes into the into the zone or whatever that's in stalker it's called zone but uh because (laughs) because she owed him the shimmer yeah so like one girl's an addict one is suicidal one lost a child jennifer jason lee's character kind of hints that she smoked and drank until she had cancer so like i think so so, but then it just kind of ends there i don't think that you know this idea of division of the self-destructive nature really connects into what the shimmer of the alien force is doing which i think is really disappointing here's a here's an interesting uh, or at least interesting to me thought uh so if this is true, like if if the whatever the being is, and I, I'm hesitant to call it an alien, whatever this thing is, is sort of representing life's, um, and again, not desire, but ability to just not to continue and change and duplicate, continue, change, duplicate. The fact that the film itself doesn't actually give us a reason this is I, I might be making excuses for the filmmakers at this point, but like the film itself is doing as far as the narrative is concerned, being told to us exactly what the quote creature is doing with all of biological life. Like it's it's yes. just continuing on. There's no reason. It's just continuing on. So like, you know, I that might be a little bit of, uh, you know. Uh, well, Monday morning quarterbacking, I hear as a sports term people use. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, I, I don't know. There, there's there's something oddly comforting uh, in that theory to me of just life not necessarily having a important meaning or a film not having an important sort of like uh, overall like this is what we're saying at the end, but something that like, oh, no, this is just a thing that happens. That the characters we like went through. I yeah. saw that contrast and juxtaposition serving to present that this idea that the film is trying to say, which is that the drive towards self-destruction is what gives us purpose, right? You look at these things, you have a purposeless entity, which is the zone, which is all it's doing is continuing to grow. The zone does not have a drive to self-destruction. At no point is the zone going to, biology is going to break down, right? And then you have these four characters who all have five characters, whatever it was, who all have a uh, severe drive. In fact, their only characterization is basically their various drives to self-destruction. But that's also what gives them all purpose, right? Um, And so I thought we were setting that juxtaposition up side by side in the film in order to make the point about whether or not I agree with it that this drive to self-destruction is what, as humanity, gives us purpose versus this other entity which just grows. So let's go into the death drive because I think we're kind of already talking about that. So the death drive is a Freudian term that describes an individual's drive toward death or self-destruction. It's a desire for like the peace and serenity of inanimate life like your mother's womb or death. So as I explained earlier, you know, all the girls or I'm sorry, yeah, all the characters self-destruct. And I would say that the film is permeated by this kind of this feeling of melancholy. And I don't know if this is going too far. Austin, would you say, and I'm I'm calling out Austin because I feel like he's the one who might go this far with me, but uh, the hole inside the lighthouse kind of 
is shaped like a womb. <laughs> I didn't you even think about that. mean the cosmic butthole of the universe? <laughs> I didn't even think about that. Maybe. I maybe. love that Keep part. going. I like it. Um, so yeah, like I'll just read one of the lines. Like, why did my husband volunteer for a suicide mission? And then Jennifer Jason Lee says, you're confusing suicide with self-destruction. Almost none of us commit suicide. Almost all of us self-destruct in some form or another. We drink, we smoke, we destabilize the good job, the good marriage. These aren't decisions. They're impulses. And so the reason I'm bringing this up and, and, and more to the point of the death drive and the sense of melancholy and how Austin was connecting it to the Von Trier film Melancholia, I think we most clearly see that in Jennifer Jason Lee's character Ventress, especially at the beginning. She's always fidgeting, looking at her hands. She's doodling and just sounding really unenthused and whispering, I guess because she has terminal cancer. She really is the one that has the most melancholic resignation toward the inevitability of death. Um, so I think that the whole melancholia thing is is most present there. Mm. Now, what I was so now I'm going to get to my end or my theory about the ending, which by the way doesn't work. So what I'm about to say <laughs> I think is not right, but it's I want it because I was tempted to find meaning. Like it, it just it's unfulfilling for the the alien just to come and to have not really any kind of a purpose and for the fact that he's refracting DNA within the shimmer is just arbitrary. It's really just a a cool sci-fi trope that, you know, right. allows for some cool visuals. So my theory is kind of based in the last or the second to last shot of the movie. So there's like those doors that are split in half. I don't know if you guys remember this, but basically like while they're embracing, we see the doors to, I guess, the contamination chamber or wherever they are closed and it's pretty much split down the middle of the frame and we see that at the end when the door is closed they're framed on the right side of the thing so like if we're to continue this this theme of division of cellular division one becoming two there is this sense of unity at the end, visually. Uh, there's also, earlier on in the movie, there's a shot where uh, they're both reading. It's a flashback where uh, Kane and Lena are reading. She's reading some biology book, and they're framed on opposite sides of the frame. It's like a wide shot, and there's kind of like this emphasis of division. So my theory is that the... Alien wanted to cure humanity of this divisive nature, of this sense of self-destruction. So when we see that that visual cue at the end, it perhaps suggests that that the relationship is no longer refracted, no longer divided. We're meant to believe that no matter who they are, whether they are Cain or not, whether they are lean or not, they will have a more successful relationship. They'll get over the whole thing with the affair and their relationship problems. Um and so when I think about a spectrum and I think about uh, a prism, you know, we, we classically think of a prism as, you know, a single white beam of light goes through the prism and then it's dispersed into, you know, the various colors of the color wheel. I'm horrible with science. I'm probably fucking this up. But my theory was that this is what I was thinking when I was watching the movie and in the end kind of shat on it. But the alien wanted to reverse this process to basically take the spectrum and put it back into a prism and make it one thing to heal humanity of its self-destructive divisive nature. Um, and then my last point to this theory that does not work is that the name Cain I thought was kind of reminiscent of Cain and Abel, kind of the first murder and the archetypal narrative of man's destructive nature. So those were pieces that I was trying to build this idea of what the point of the aliens thing is, what the point of the shimmer is, why does the shimmer work in the way it does? Why what does the it, point of this why, movie is? Why does it refract DNA for other reasons than just like it's a cool motivation for visuals? And that was all I was able to come up with. And once again, I don't think it works. You can po poke holes in that all day, but... I just wanted to say it because that's the best I can come up with. Well, maybe, what do you guys think? Maybe it isn't so much that that this alien force wanted to do that, but that it just simply does do that. And the reason right. that it simply does do that is because life just simply does that. And so that maybe if you could take um, a, a kernel or a moral kernel out of this, it's the idea that, hey, guess what? Biologically, all of these, these um, identities and all of these traumas and all of these symptomatic experiences of life that cause us towards this death, death drive, that really um, that we can transcend them or we can undercut them or we can subvert them because biology just simply uh, produces these types of things because that's just simply the way life is. It scrambles the codes and the identities and always gives us an opportunity to create new codes and new identities. So maybe it's just this blind process that just de facto it like unscrambles the codes and then rescrambles them in a new pattern. So would you say that uh, life 
uh, finds a way. Is that what yeah. you're? I, I, I was waiting for you to say that. <laughs> I actually read, I think I read a review where they actually totally, because totally, they do, the, do they talk about chaos theory in this film? I can't remember. They could have, I and it, I would have just been like, yeah, this makes sense. They're talking about this right now. Yeah. But I don't remember. Yeah, in a way, life finds a way, you know, like it just, and I think what, what Dr. Malcolm uh, was trying to get at is that, um, that, that life just simply functions and it does so maybe, maybe not because it has a, a teleological or some sort of like impelling idea of exactly how to do it, but it fucking figures it out by just doing different things. It, you can't suppress life completely. All you can do is um, encounter it in different formations. Yeah. Well, I was going to say that <clears throat> more to my point about how, you know, oftentimes when we have uh, scientific exposition or people talking about science, usually it it's relevant later on. But there's that, you guys remember the scene where, uh, Kane and Lena are in bed and they talk about God doesn't make mistakes. If you take a cell and circumvent the Hayflick limit, it confronts an essence. It means cells don't grow old. It becomes immortal. It keeps dividing, doesn't die. We see aging as a natural process, but it's actually a fault in our genes. This is the kind of thing that like, first of all, not the greatest, most natural dialogue between a couple. <laughs> no. And so if it's so if it's not that, They're then scientists. it should be pointing toward well, only one of them's a scientist, but it should be pointing towards Something thematically, and I just don't think that it really does. Unless, uh, what do you guys think? I mean, I think it's a bunch. It's it's a bunch of just flowery uh, uh, edu- uh, intellectual language around. You know, yeah, <laughs> that's around not the, good. See, I know I, it's not. It's not. It, they didn't do a good job of writing this movie. <laughs> I mean, the writing to me was pretty weak in this film. But in that particular case, I mean, I think it was a ham-handed way to get back to this idea that. Uh, self-destruction is a hard-coded part of us, um, that this falling apart is part of human nature on every level, including the biological level, and that when they go into the shimmer, they're dealing with something that doesn't have that urge, right? Doesn't have that coded into its DNA in the way that we do, right? Um, And since this entire thing was about functionally people falling apart, um, I feel like that's what they were trying to get at, uh, I feel like it was a a very uh, maladroit attempt at doing so, but I do feel like any time where you have that type of scientific language, that ham-handedly put into a scene, they're trying to tell you, hey, look, this is the point. Uh, it just wasn't a particularly good one. <laughs> but I also think that the point would have been better if so. If she's saying, you know, God doesn't make mistakes, and then he said, I'm pretty sure he does. It would be a lot better if the alien was trying to fix the mistake. But I don't think, once again, I feel like maybe that was in an earlier draft. And I'd actually be curious to hear what James says about the book. But I guess my point is by just, you know, throwing everything away behind a bunch of I don't knows, it just makes it deliberately cryptic while, but, you know, when when we have this basically nonsensical ending that's deliberately cryptic and then when we try to recontextualize all these, you know, ham-fisted biological expositions then it's just like, okay, now this is just bad dialogue that doesn't point to anything. This sucks. So I am, um, oh, sorry, continue. Oh, but yeah, I want to hear about the book, James. I was just going to say, I mean, part of my issue was exactly what you bring up. Uh, in the book, it's actually fairly explicit that, at least in the first book, right? Uh, they do a lot more later on, but um, in the book Annihilation, it's made fairly explicit that there is sort of a purpose to this uh, to this zone. Um, and the zone itself, actually, there's a biological language which the characters decrypt, which sort of allows the zone to speak. And um, really, the zone's purpose is simply to lay out the myriad of possibilities for life that um, that were sort of the paths we didn't go down. And there's this famous passage, I mean, mm. probably the most famous passage in the book is when they first decrypt this language and they're reading it on the wall of this inverted tower, this cave, the, the lighthouse in the movie is this weird mashup of the lighthouse in the book and this this cave, this inverted tower that they spend so much time in um, in, in the book. And... That also didn't work for me for a bunch of reasons, but uh, when they finally decrypt this thing, it goes, uh, where lies the strangling fruit that came from the hands of the sinner? I shall bring forth the seeds of the dead to share with the worms that gather in the darkness and surround the world with the power of their lives, while from the dim-lit halls of other places, forms that never were and never could be writhe for the impatience of the few who never saw what could have been. Um, 
And to me, that passage is just talking about the fact that uh, this thing has a, a, an urge to sort of show us and is trying to show us all the other forms of life that we take for granted because they don't exist, but could have existed, and that our particular form is not actually special in any way, right? Is, is, a, um, is a random roll of the dice, and uh, and that all these other ways could have existed, and yet we some see everything through our own human lens, through sort of our own biological imperatives, um, and very rarely stop to consider all the other sort of nature's biological imperatives that could have been. Yeah, and that's interesting because that that kind of I think that would that fits into what I was thinking about with the the when I talk called it like the Deleuzian ending, and it's that idea that um, that life itself is just pure potential, pure potency, pure multiplicity, and that the various uh, like you call them the the various throws of the dice, which actually Deleuze talks about quite a bit, uh, the idea of the throw of the dice. But with it, with every throw of the dice, some new formation, some new pattern, some new what Deleuze and Guattari would call machinic assemblage. Some assemblage has come together. But that assemblage isn't necessary. It could have been otherwise. And it's always scrambling itself and actually becoming otherwise as it refracts various other assemblages that are encountering it. And so what this shimmer does is it sort of just intensifies that. It just magnifies that. It 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 is that. It is that what I called earlier, that rhizome, that that lateral dispersion of uh of that potency of life, which is cancer, right? I mean that's what yeah. that's what that's what cancer is. And cancer is the abundance of life. Um and when you have too much life, here's the weird juxtaposition. It creates death. And what it creates death in is those former assemblages that you thought were necessary. So, um, so that's why, you know, Jennifer Jason Lee's amazing, uh, call out of the title of the movie when she says annihilation is the sort of end goal. It's not annihilation as such. It's not like pure nothingness. It's the annihilation of, what you understand in your phenomenological or existential or personal or whatever psychological experiences. So can I can I stop and talk about that moment in the film for a second? <laughs> yeah, let's do it. Because, <laughs> all right, I'm going to go back to the book. But this was a hugely important, there's a whole bunch of changes, right? A book doesn't begin with it was aliens. It doesn't have that whole comet scene. Book the zone isn't as covert as it is here. There's been a bunch of teams that have gone in. People know about it. The opening section, they're not, uh, she's not like kidnapped by the government and brought to this black site. Hmm. Um, and the opening section with her husband is way creepier and makes more sense. But this is all leading to also the organization that runs the zone is a lot creepier. And uh, do you guys remember at the beginning of the film, they enter the shimmer and then all of a sudden their camp sort of set up and that's a weird thing and it's never touched on again in the film? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yes. So in the book, and this is a hugely important part of the book, in order to try and keep people sane and to control them within the zone, the psychologist is actually sent with the team because she's regularly hypnotizing them to make them lose time and lose memory. And so the the book is, uh, is chopped up that... They haven't told any of the other members of the group that this is what's happening. And so in the relating of this story, it's very uh, desynced, right? There's a lot of temporal chops that happen when the characters just lose time because the psychologist is covertly hypnotizing them and making them lose memories. That's totally different. I mean, that literally changes, I think, a really important part of the film where in, in the film— you think that it's just simply an effect of being in the shimmer, which I think, right. and I, which it's totally well, that's different. way more like stalker, right? And, right. Oh God, I want to talk about like roadside picnic stalker connections to this, but just one <laughs> other thing to bring up. Getting back to your point about when she says the word annihilation in the book, the psychologist, uh, the main character, eventually finds the psychologist at the lighthouse, um, and the psychologist starts shouting annihilation. And it, and she just shouts it over and over, and the character is surprised, but eventually it comes out that annihilation is the key word that's supposed to, they've all been uh, hypnotized and uh, sort of psychologically manipulated into, if someone says, if the psychologist says annihilation, it's a suicide trigger. They're supposed to kill themselves when they hear the word annihilation. Um, and so that's why the psychologist says it. It's the last fallback, right? This this 
programmed in human annihilation, but not programmed in biologically, programmed in um, in terms of by other human beings. Uh, and so that's why the term annihilation comes up by the psychologist in the book, which killed me when it's used here, but you don't get that context. Well, not only that, but I think even just within the text of the movie, I don't even think it makes sense at all. Because to Natalie Portman's point at the end, she says it wasn't destroying anything, it was changing everything, making something new. And before Jennifer Jason Lee says annihilation, she says our minds and bodies will be fragmented into their smallest part till not one part remains annihilation. To me, that's not even consistent with the logic of the shimmer that we've been told. The shimmer refracts. Right. It, uh, it mixes. It mutates. I don't even see the annihilation connection. I don't even understand the title of the movie. Well, it's the annihilation. It's the annihilation of the self, right? It's the it's the disintegration of the ego. Um, I think there's a there's a Buddhist reading of this film where you could see it as the sort of complete elimination of ego and desire mm -hmm. and therefore suffering. And so what you get is an annihilation of your self experience. But it isn't annihilation. But is of that life. really what we end up having? If if once again the end of the dialectic is these two people who are embracing at the end who just don't recognize themselves. Right. What 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 indication do we have that there really is some sort of annihilation of the ego or of the self? They just seem to not really uh, recognize themselves. But other than that, we don't really have any indication of how exactly they're different. Well, so they they're not. Don't. It's not Cain anymore. It's not. It's not the old Cain. This is. This is some. Th that identity has been fragmented and it's been mixed. It's been, um, it, there's like this co, co But how is that not just a new identity? They got snakes in their bellies. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, right. Well, because every new, I mean, it is a new identity. Um, and that's that's the point. So Deleuze and Guattari use this, uh, these two terms, deterritorialization and re-territorialization to describe the movement of this rhizome that I was talking about, which fits well with cancer and the proliferation of just boundless life, just life, 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 right? Reduplicating itself and and kind of attaching itself to everything else. Um, not not a perfect model, but but close enough. And uh, every that means with with every disintegration of an identity, there's a simultaneous. Um, recreation of a new identity. So it's this idea of like a creative destruction almost. So yeah, right. it, it is a new but, identity. But like to me, to me, that's not annihilation. Annihilation is truly, you know, like the, the word Nile is in it. It's like, you know, right. complete destruction. There is no creation. Well, the shimmer's getting bigger and bigger and bigger and that's going to annihilate everything. Right, but if we're to believe Natalie Portman's line at the end, it's that it's making something new, not annihilating. Annihilation to me is just like complete abyss Well, the people think that it's annihilating. I mean, you know, it's our perception of this shimmer I know, but, getting but, bigger. But when you, have, when you have one of the characters, you know, saying the line of the movie, I'd like it to not be a mistake, you well, know? Here, the, oh, physics, well, yeah. the, the physics definition of annihilation is the conversion of matter into energy, especially uh, mutual conversion of a particle and an antiparticle into electromagnetic radiation. So if you're looking at it from the physics definition as opposed to just sort of the general like destruction or complete obliteration of something, maybe it makes more sense, but it's it it the the interesting thing I found, and this gets into a little bit more of sort of the meta of the, the making of the film and how we're talking about all the stuff, even these theories and whatnot, they're probably all not either correct or complete because this film is it in an excel itself is an example of integration. So you have these books that then Paramount opts for, right? They're going to put their own little spins on things. Then you have the director, um, uh, Alex Garland's, Right, who is trying to make one film where I believe, and this is all conjecture, but um, the he wanted to make sort of a more heady film, and they did test screenings and said, well, this is too basically highbrow for people. So there was sort of going back and forth with him in the studio about how the ending was, and he wouldn't budge here, and they wouldn't budge there. So we get this sort of amalgamation of a ton of different ideas, stuff from the book, using the the, the word annihilation, but not as the keyword, dropping that whole subplot out of the book, but still keeping them losing time because someone liked that element of it. And it's interesting to me, even just from a filmmaking perspective, that the, the, the reasons why we feel like this thing might not come together the best way that it possibly should or have at least one or two definitions or, or meanings that it could actually have is actually what the movie is talking about. Like, it, it's showing when you mash a whole bunch of stuff together, we get something <laughs> new, and it might not make sense. It's the meta reading. I like that. I usually do the meta stuff in this podcast. Oh, I, I love that. Sorry. No, 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 no. I didn't, I didn't have that idea. Please, I, I'm, I'm grateful for you bringing that up. That's pretty awesome. That is awesome. I, I was going to say, I think, I think there's a psychoanalytic reading of this to kind of like to 
to maybe wrap up this 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 bit that I was trying to say earlier and then kind of responding to you just a minute ago, Jared, and it sort of latches on to, to what we were just saying there, Matthew, with kind of the more meta, the meta point, um, is that the psychoanalytic reading might argue that, okay, so there are two networks of power, let's say. There's the alien network of power and then there's the human, right? The human is mm-hmm. characterized by reflection. We want answers. We want to study stuff and then bring it back so we can figure it out. Um, all of these military people want to know what does it want? What does it want? They want to incorporate this other thing uh, into the symbolic order, right? They want to put a language on it or they want to put a word on it. They want to describe it. They want to incorporate it or appropriate it into the symbolic order that characterizes the human network. The other network, the alien network, doesn't have that. It is this potentially, if it is this, this boundless, mindless um, flow of multiplicities that is just going to reduplicate itself endlessly. So the the idea of annihilation isn't annihilation as such in terms of the nothingness, but rather it's the annihilation entirely of the symbolic order. So what you get in uh, this this final embrace of these two new assemblages is that they are just um, one particular, let's say, snapshot in the complete unfolding of the process of perpetual annihilation that will ultimately be the end as life, the alien network, complete, completely proliferates and becomes ubiquitous, taking over all of humanity on Earth, thereby destroying the symbolic order. Not necessarily destroying life because it would be some sort of new, uh, more complex network of life itself, but nevertheless, the annihilation is the annihilation of the symbolic, the annihilation of the ego, the annihilation of all self that will eventually take place because that's what will happen based on how the alien network flows. I don't know how aware you are of how tangential to meta you're getting because now I feel like we're saying that, uh, you know, if the if the alien is annihilating the symbolic order, then that justifies the fact that the ending doesn't really point to anything because it annihilates the <laughs> symbolic order of how a movie should conclude. Maybe. Boom. Boom. I love Boom. it. We can't show you the meaning of this movie, unfortunately. So I was interested in this idea that you're saying about the – um, about seeing it as additions rather than, say, changes, right? Because the way that I saw most of the creatures in this in this story, uh, it was much more sort of your old boat, right? Uh, you're replacing a plank, and mm. eventually, do you have a whole new boat, right? Um, right. Because or the human body. Every seven years, our cells regenerate and we're physically a different entity. Right. Um, and so, uh, but I see that just happening in a much more rapid sense here where we're removing one piece from the core entity, if you will, and replacing it with a patched-in piece of something else. Uh, and over time, we're losing the distinction of, of the core entity. Yeah, I guess to the only thing I would say is is and ra- what do we do to stick with the metaphor of the boat? What do you do with the old piece that you replaced? I would say that what this film is offering is a picture rather than like taking off the board and then putting a new one in where that one was taken out. They're just like adding layers perpetually, endlessly, and so that's what you get with the cancer metaphor. Is that and eventually, yeah, the boat sinks. Well, yeah, and then it sinks well, and then it, it takes a new form and it becomes a, a submarine, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, <laughs> mm-hmm. and, then, and then you get the same thing, but that's what happens when you get endless growth of, growth of life, which is why cancer is, is pathological, um, is that it just simply keeps growing. It, it is pure excess of life. And this is, and I know that when we kind of talk about abstract stuff like the debates in philosophy, it's really exciting. Trust me, guys, this debate between Deleuze and uh, Deleuzeans and Hegelians is really fun, but it really centers <laughs> around this idea of negation and what happens with the the idea of negativity itself. Whereas that, that would be like the Hegelian thing. They want to they wanna espouse um, an idea, an ontology, which is like a theory of being, right? They want the negative. Whereas Deleuzeans are like, no, 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 it's just all positivity. It's all abundance. It's all life. It's all excess. And um, and so that's where I think these that maybe there are two interpretations of this film that can kind of be characterized in those two ways. So I want to ask James one last question before we move on to the mailbag. 
Are you aware, is the book at all, I know that Stalker is also based on a book. Is the book at all based on that? Is there any kind of indication of uh, like a, a nod towards Stalker? I mean, the movie especially, I mean, the zone looks exactly like <laughs> the shimmer, yeah. like the the visuals, everything. I mean, it's, it's pretty uncanny. And I'm curious if there's any indication of that within the book. Well, what kills me, so I don't know if there was a direct I mean I'm assuming that he's read Roadside Picnic um it clearly looks like it has an influence on this what kills me is everything we've talked about here is solved in Roadside Picnic in a way that it was not solved in this film because the whole point of Roadside Picnic is it is irrelevant right the zone in Stalker in Roadside Picnic uh, culminates in that line where he talks about well what if there isn't a point? What if this was just aliens stopping by for a roadside picnic and this is just all the trash they left, right? Like, imagine how animals see us when a family pulls up, has a picnic, leaves their garbage on the ground, packs back up in their car and gets going. There's no rhyme or reason, but these all seem like amazing artifacts, wonderful things to these mm. much lesser beings that uh, that can't possibly even understand them. And maybe that's what happened here, right? And I love that understanding of roadside picnic that we just, that is left out of the film here. Yeah. Mm. Um, all right, so we are going to move on to the mailbag. Ryan, do you have some questions picked out? I have a few. Cool, let's do it. All right, um, first message is from Kevin. He says, since you guys are movie buffs, just like the rest of us will listen to this wonderful podcast, I was wondering what you guys think of the Oscar outcomes. And also, <laughs> why does Christopher Nolan always get the short end of the stick when it comes to those awards? In my mind, he's one of the best directors out there. Wow. Well, uh, I have not watched the Oscars in 10 years. Uh, I couldn't care less, to be honest. <laughs> well, um, I thought it was cool that the that the, that the the fish sex movie won, fish monster sex movie won, best picture, and that'll be there forever. Grinding Nemo? Yeah, <laughs> Grinding Nemo. Wow. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, that was cool. Jordan Peele's award was cool. Anyone else? What did you guys think? Yeah, I don't give a fuck. I I, I think that it's um, it's uh, we're pretentious assholes here. Well, I mean, it's I I don't mind the idea of rewarding good work and rewarding hard work and and giving people you know notoriety and attention. Like someone like Greta Gerwig, who's not going to be able to go on to make more movies, or someone like Guillermo del Toro, who's not going to be able to make more movies. Like I like that, obviously. Give people some due so that they can keep making rad art. But uh, we put so much stock in the Oscars, like it actually means something. And I think that's what I have a problem with. All it means, really, is financing. That's all it is. Yeah. And it's if you're nominated or if you win, then you now have the clout to go and and use that exactly. to do hopefully bigger and better or maybe even more interesting or more intricate things. Uh, but that's sort of on the industry side of it. From the, like, the spectacle side of it, like as far as this Oscars was concerned, I'm not a huge Jimmy Kimmel fan. Uh, he did mm -hmm. fine. The whole show was fine. The outcomes were fine. <laughs> Um, but, I, <laughs> but like, for instance, Shape of Water, I love Guillermo del Toro. I think he's a fantastic filmmaker. I'm glad that film won. Do I think it's best picture? No. Uh, yeah, get out, get out was best picture. Uh, in Good my time was best picture, baby. <laughs> Good time. <laughs> but like all of the nominees this year, something I was really happy with was there wasn't one on the list where I was like, no. Like, I yeah. was never, there was never, like, that moment where, uh, like, hell, when La La Land was that whole debacle, even before it, when it was nominated, I was like, really? We're going to go with this the most baity? Okay, let's do Thank it. Man, I, yeah, I, I fucking love movie. La La Land. No, you don't. <laughs> I do. Do I you? Yeah, he doesn't. I do. I do love that movie. It should have won. <laughs> Listen, I want to see a story with Ryan Gosling saving jazz. That's what I want to see. <laughs> uh, You've anyway. seen it, man. Yeah, I know. <laughs> See, yeah. okay. I mean, I, I really get off on the Oscars. I really like it. I don't. T I don't put like actual stock in my life in it, but I do like you know awarding the best movies of the year because I like. I watch. But that's not what they fun. do. Okay, yeah. I know, but it's like just watching them try to do it. It's fun, but you know, it's obviously not the actual best movies that I think are. But he whatever. likes bathing in the watch. ideological fiction that this show actually. Thank you, means Austin. Yes, <laughs> yes, thank you. That's what I like to do. Well, you know, it's, it's nice it's, when there's a goalpost, right? There's and I like betting on it. Yeah. I like so, <laughs> I'm going to go back and I'm going to argue uh, that in games, one of the failures is that we don't have the Oscars because the Oscars are useless. They're a group of people giving themselves an award, but right. because everybody wants to go to the next cocktail party and say they won an Oscar, 
films that otherwise wouldn't get made get made that are interesting in new artistic ways that doesn't happen in stuff like games as often because we don't have that award ceremony. Right. Thank you. So the Oscars are responsible for good movies getting made, right? That's what you're saying? In a very cynical way, though, because I think, like, you know, it's like, all right, we spend the whole year with uh, Marvel movies and uh, action movies, and then, you know, just so we can pat ourselves on the back and convince ourselves that we still have, uh, you know, integrity, we, you know, uh, put some Oscar movies into production. And look, like, the thing that bothers me is that the Oscars should not be valuable because they're the Oscars. The Oscars should have to earn our respect by the fact that they reward the best movies, which they don't. So I think that therefore the Oscars aren't meaningful. Well, it's, I it's, think it, it's it also exactly... produces a certain kind of knowledge that I think is detrimental to social relations because it just reinforces and it makes a, it turns it into a bigger deity or it turns celebrities or celebrity culture into a bigger deity. And I think that that has serious problems for mediating social relations. It just, it just makes it, um, it makes it as though these individuals have a certain level of social and political import and value that I'm not necessarily sure we ought to try to fall at their feet and absolutely, and, uh, yeah, absolutely uh, not. Oblige. It's all just a, yeah. it's a charade. It's a spectacle and. You know, it's the least, it's the lowest rated Oscars in history. And there's right. a reason for it that. It wasn't a good one. I mean, I, yeah, no, there, it wasn't that fun. Yeah. Not many funny jokes. But then at the same time, and again, I feel like there's two sides of the coin and, and I'm not, believe me, I'm not trying to, um, to, to defend the Oscars as an institution, but it's that whole thing of like, it is fun on a, on a, on a surface level. I enjoy the quote competition of it, but also, uh, it, I, lots of stuff in life only matters because it matters. Like, it's self-perpetuated itself to this point uh, where, like, for, I mean, again, we, this is a different conversation, but, like, <laughs> this isn't a perfect analogy, but money only works because we believe in it. Like, right. <laughs> it's, it's, this clout that the Oscars has only works because we believe in it. Exactly. So, uh, but, now, but I do think that that belief is eroding. Yes, the belief is eroding, and also just back to the point of, like, it, 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 it enables the ability or enables more good films to be made. I don't entirely agree with that. I, may, I would, would say that it allows the sample size of, of the chance of better films to be made to be larger. Because and is the I, is, I like is the belief in it eroding, or is it just simply dispersing into new forms? You know, Ooh. YouTube, in Instagram celebrities, um, you know, things like that. Netflix, various platforms. I don't well, know the that belief in it. The faith in, in it, the Oscars, in spe specifically. Right. Okay. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. I, I might even believe like, in celebrity it, 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 culture. It, it, belief, belief in celebrity it, culture, I think, is proliferating even to a greater degree because now everyone with their own social media profile is their own celebrity. Yes. Right, I'm talking about the institution of the Oscars specifically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're all because reporting the, on those because, people that we're talking about. Are you saying, Jared, because they're not given the best movies, the awards? No, that's not what I'm saying. I think it, other reasons. I mean, that's the reason why my belief in it has, and my faith in it has eroded, but I think that in general, people are a little bit sick and tired of the constant political charade. I think people are more than ever realizing that, like, wait a second, I've never heard of this movie and it's winning Best Picture. There are other movies that I thought were really great and, you know, there's almost this kind of, like, you know, the, the, the reason I stopped watching the Oscars is, I, this is going to sound super douchey, but when the Dark Knight wasn't uh, wasn't nominated <laughs> for Best Picture, I was like, "Fuck this!" <laughs> the Reader, no one saw that bullshit. Amazing, you know? yeah, and it, there is the, there is this uh, very uh, elitism to it that I think well, that more than ever is turning see, people I, off. I, I, I feel like the the elitism is just this uh, a byproduct of the fact that there's more movies, there's more niche movies, there's more awesome niche movies. Whereas back in the day, you what know, are you talking about? There's less movies made now than that, ever. That's not true at all, dude. Well, uh, in the uh, theaters, yeah, okay, in the theaters. Right. But uh, 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 but I'm saying that 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 back in the day, there was like okay, the ten movies, fifteen movies that came out like over the year, where like everyone saw them, and then everyone, you know, the the biggest bestest movie won, and everyone liked it usually, and it was like you know fucking Lawrence of Arabia or whatever, and now. Now it's kind of like, yeah, Moonlight is winning uh, and stuff, which, you know, very few people saw that movie, but like everyone that votes voted it, you know? Uh, uh, but, but I think that that's what kind of what you're saying is that, that the mainstream kind of doesn't really relate to the movies that are either getting nominated or winning, you know? Yeah. I mean, having said that, I love Moonlight, but yeah, anyway, I, I fucking great. love Moonlight too, but it's kind of like, like it's, you know, no one saw it. <laughs> well, you yeah. can't deny it. So Jared, why do you think, do you think, uh, there's a reason why Christopher Nolan is getting shut out. I mean, you mentioned Dark Knight. This the person who wrote us on this email mentioned the fact that Christopher Nolan seemed to get shafted. Do you have a theory on why he hasn't been successful? Yeah, because his movies make too much money. You think? Interesting. Yeah. 
I think that that's like, you know, it's not refined enough. Interesting. See, that's what I was saying. Is that it used to be the movies that made a lot of money would would win if they were the best movie. Well, know? that's because the movies that used to make a lot of money, there was kind of this more, uh, you know, monoculture in which, you know, like there was an agreement on what was considered elevated, which was considered prestigious. You know, these days, uh, you know, because there's so much niche stuff, the only stuff that really reaches a wide audience is Marvel movies. But there, there is no real Lawrence of Arabia of our time. No, mm-hmm. yeah, I agree. It's a yeah. problem. I mean, I think Dunkirk should have won. I think of that list, personally, Dunkirk, uh, I think, was the best film of the year. So, uh, with, with I think the of the list, that we're Get Out was. Of, of those 10 but, or 9 or whatever they were. I loved The Disaster Artist. And someone who's- <laughs> That wasn't on the list, No, though. I know I know it wasn't, but I'm just saying, like, as someone who moved to LA with no prospects and meets a lot of weirdos in an attempt to just get a paycheck, it really- It really- uh, <laughs> That would have been your best picture. Yeah. That's my favorite movie of the year, probably. That would have been my best performance. You know a movie I thought I'm curious to what the extra credits guys think about this? Did you guys like Split? I loved Split. Oh, yeah. Split was awesome. Split was- In fact, that was one- Yeah, Split was cool. I, I didn't, like, it didn't- Grab me, grab me, but like I, I enjoyed my time with it. Yeah. Anyway, I, uh, I want to just say, guys, check out extra credits on YouTube. Check out their Twitch stream. Check out their podcast. These guys obviously are smart as a whip. Uh, thank you guys so much for joining us. This is a great, great conversation. No, thank you very much for having us. It's been a blast. No, this has been great. Uh, thank you for the for the shout out, and hopefully we get to do this again sometime. And by the way, we've got a collaboration on our YouTube channels coming up with extra credits. We're both doing a video on Nier Automata, ah, so the good. Square Enix video game. Yes. So be on the lookout for that. I'm excited to see your guys' video, and I'm excited to see how it does. Awesome. Well, thank you again for having us on. Yeah, thank you so much, guys. All right, so just a reminder, you guys, uh, we're still doing our Rick and Morty podcast, The Squanch. Also want to ask you guys if you could take the time to leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps us. Uh, Other than that, that's it. That's it for today, and we'll see you next time. Peace. Goodbye from Hollywood, California. (laughs) (laughs) Later, everybody. Do-do-do-do.